We're going to be reading this morning from the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, to, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we look at the subject of prayer, I thought, who better to consult than Jesus Christ? I've spoken on this before, but uh, I must say that one of the hardest things people wrestle with is this matter of prayer. Uh, and I think of Luther when he was having his hair cut and he's having a shave, his barber asked him, how do you pray? And since Luther did not want to risk being cut, and he did not want to get his uh, barber's attention too diverted, he wrote him a letter that took 40 pages in which he taught him how he prayed. And uh, there's, you go up in, on the Internet, and you can bring it up. It was written in the 1500s. And uh, his six steps were basically uh, here, warm up, and uh, he averaged spending every morning three hours in prayer, and if he had more to do, he prayed an extra hour. So many days he prayed four hours. He always prayed three, but some days he prayed four, something like your prayer life. Uh, and uh, he, how did you do it? And in that little 40-page letter, these are some of the highlights. He said, uh, if you're going to pray, you have to intentionally get your mind in the framework of prayer. And for Luther, who would get up maybe at 4 in the morning, uh, he thought posture was very important. Uh, 
he would kneel or as an Augustinian monk in his background stand, have his hands folded. And he wasn't just uh, uh, stay in an ordinary posture. He got his body, as it were, in that condition, got his mind uh, to be thinking about it. And then reflection. And uh, both George Mueller, the great uh, uh, brother that uh, raised money for orphanages and prayed every day, uh, many men, what transformed them in prayer, because the hardest thing in the morning is to wake up at 6.30, let's say, and I want to pray, and when you get on your knees, you're blank. Uh, what do I say? What do I talk about? Uh, and so they would learn to pray Scripture, either pray through the Psalms, uh, pray through the New Testament. George Mueller did this. Uh, John Piper, you'll find this in his own writings. Uh, that learning, because it's just to go to God with a blank mind or the cares of life just ambush you the first thing in the morning. The hardest thing is to uh, get the mind kind of cleared up and reflect, and that's Scripture. Uh, and one of the reasons I think you need to learn to pray sometime in the morning is because busyness is the enemy of prayer. Uh, before you know it, by eight, everything in your world will become urgent, and prayer can wait. And you putting it off, you'll lose the spirit of prayer. Once you shut it down about three times, no, I got to get this, I got to get that, I got, I got. It's almost like God says, "Let's the spirit of it go away." He says, "You know what? If you want to wait, I can wait." But I'm not going to give you the relief I would have given you had you talked to me. And so you start out with, I got to warm up. In America, that is, I got to have a cup of coffee. That gets me going. The strongest I could drink. And then reflection and thanksgiving. If you don't know where to begin, and this is Luther again, he'd start thanking God for what he'd already done. And if you really do Thanksgiving, I think you'll be in prayer over five minutes if you really think through what you're thankful for. And then uh, he would deal with confession, maybe something he had done or said, deal with that. Then he would go into petition, and then he would always ask, what did I do today? What deed do I need to carry out to adjust myself to what I reflected? Now, uh, let's pick up what Christ said about prayer. And uh, the thing that's so interesting, Christ never taught us how to raise children. He never taught us how to preach. And that's why most of us don't know how. He didn't teach us a lot of things, but something remarkable, his disciples said, would you teach us how to pray? And you know, I, I think something you ought to ask yourself has anyone ever asked you to teach them that? When I went to seminary, there's courses on how to exegete the Bible, how to preach the Bible, how to teach the Bible, and not one class on prayer. All the way through a doctorate. 14 years, you'd think it would show up in the curriculum somewhere. And guess what? Most guys I went to seminary with didn't know how to pray. And I don't know very well. So, you ought to ask if folks ever asked you to teach them to pray. 
they probably won't ask if they don't ever see you doing it. But these guys saw Jesus pray, and he had two things he had to deal with. They were religious men who'd grown up in the synagogue. They had heard uh, uh, synagogue worship, temple worship. It's kind of an amazing thing. These are not pagan Gentiles. These are Jewish boys. They've been around religious activity all their life. Uh, they've, they've heard the scriptures read at synagogue. But of all things, they say, to this one who calls himself Messiah, we want to know how to pray. Well, you've been around prayer all your life. Why would you ask me such a question? And what's amazing, Christ does not tell them how loud to pray, how long to pray. He says nothing really about posture to pray. We know he knelt, he stood, a lot of different postures. He didn't tell them uh, the manner to pray. Watch this now. He told them the matters they ought to be praying about. And when I've come to uh, the disciples' prayer, if you grew up in a liturgical church, let's say a Lutheran church, and many other liturgical churches, you may have started every Sunday morning service with our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you got this rote and never, and then if you're like me that didn't grow up with liturgy, I've always just read these about 12 lines they have never taught me to pray except for the last five years because I never saw in it how to pray. I'm looking, wait, do you want me on my knees? Do I get loud? Do I go long? Do I cry? He doesn't address any of that because they're categories that you have to reflect on. You have to reflect on what he's saying here. Come on, this is Jesus. This isn't John MacArthur. This is Jesus. And come on, get, what, my land, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You know, only about ten lines. Some of you just clearing your throat in ten lines. But they're categories that he's really saying, God wants you to talk to him about these categories. And if you reflect on them, and if you make them as a primer in your morning prayer, this, Luther prayed the Sermon on the Mount, he, he would go through the Ten Commandments, but he spent three hours going through one commandment. He only covered one commandment a day in the Ten Commandments, one a day. He reflected. And so many of you, you never think, I, I just want to ask God for something real quick and get it, I'll see you later. You're not praying. Don't even call that prayer. You're too busy to wait and reflect. You've got to engage your whole being if you're going to talk to God. And that's what's wrong with us. We're busy. We've got noises coming in. We've got things in our ear. We've got stuff on the radio. We got, you know, it's Sean and I coming to the office. And I said, let's just pray on the way to the office. What a wonderful time. Did you know you can pray in your car? Did you know you can go one day without somebody else talking in your ear besides God? But we're hooked on sound. Now, here's the problem. They had been seeing wrong ways to pray, so now he has to uh, detox them. And so we start, and let me just go briefly, and then we'll get into this. First of all, don't pray to be seen of men, and that's verse 1. Don't 
seek to do your righteous activity to be seen of men. Now, that's good, but don't get carried away. We are told to pray corporately. He wanted men, holy men in 1 Timothy, to lift up their hands when they prayed. I take that literally. Most of our men would croak. They don't know how to raise their hands. He said, raise your hands when you're in the church and say, I'm living for God and pray. 1 Timothy 2. 1 Corinthians 14, we come together, there ought to be corporate prayer. I had a man tell me one time, you're unscriptural. You pray in public. You're praying to be seen of men. No, I'm told to pray in public, but my motive isn't to be seen of men. I've got to be sure that my motive, because he said something like this, be sure you do good deeds in the sight of men so they may glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Quit putting light under a bushel. So you've got to balance the Scripture. We need to be doing good that can be seen, not to be seen, but so our Father is put on display. God delivers us from a hidden religion that nobody can see it. Nobody. I don't want anyone to see my works. Well, believe me, we don't. I don't think God does. He, but you're not doing it to be seen. It's motive. So... Then he goes on, and it says, uh, don't do any of your deeds. Uh, sound a trumpet when you're going to pray or when you're going to give. He said, if you do that, you, you get your reward like this. They hear it, they see it, and they say, he said, you just got your reward. There's nothing left. You wanted the praise of many. There's your reward. You got it. He said, you want to do things so that your father will see it, and that he'll reward you. Then he goes to verse 5, and it says, don't pray like hypocrites. Did you know hypocrites pray? Well, how do they pray? Well, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they might be seen of others. Ah, so they're playing to an audience of people. They're, you know, they want to be seen. Prayer, the audience is God not people, right? Matter of fact, this worship service, Kierkegaard said, the audience is really the, it is God, the actors happen to be the people, and the preacher is just the prompter to help you get your lines. God's the audience in this medium. And, and, and God's going to judge, and, and he's going to grade on you whether you really worship today or not, or if you endured. A lot of times you endure, and you'll go, but God is the audience today. I'm preaching for you, God. I want your approval. And if they sleep, that's their problem. I want to do it for you. You're not asleep. And you see what I'm doing. And God sees what you're doing. So don't be texting in this service. And don't be turn off your phone. And you better get awake right now because God's looking down these pews. And lightning can hit you any moment. Grant it, Lord, on pew five. Get alive. Wake up. But we don't, we don't act that way. We act like you're the audience, and I've got to keep you awake. No, I don't. The audience in church is God. He's the one that wants worship. He's the one that sees it for singing. He's the one seeing if you're balancing your checkbook or if you're really looking at your Bible. And, and don't, don't come to church to do that. Stay home. You're not worth spit anyway. That's my favorite word lately. It's so graphic. You were out where spit. 
That's the best I can do. Because he's the audience. Have you done anything so far that is well-pleasing? And did you know listening to preaching can be an act of worship? Because you could say, I want to hear your voice. Talk to me. Talk to me, Lord. I don't want to hear Howard. I want to hear you. And that's why you better hope you get a Bible preacher, because otherwise you'll just hear a cracky voice from an old guy that won't do you a bit of good. But if God's talking through his word to you, he can change your life. So don't be like the hypocrites who do it to be seen of men. And then he said, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. So they'd obviously heard how the Gentiles pray. What's that? They have some mantra. I've heard so many folks in prayer meetings, they thought if they ever stopped making noise, God quit hearing. They just keep on. You got a mantra. If you get on the Catholic hour, Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed now the hour of our need, and you can hear a rosary going for an hour. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Don't pray that way. God doesn't hear you because you talk a lot. They think they will be heard for their many words. So there probably is a place in prayer where you just hush up and listen to it. If you're reflecting on his word and you're having to deal with your innermost motives and intents, so just stop. But I grew up, I was nervous if you ever stopped talking. And, and a lot of praying you keep trying to inform omniscience about what you need. And he says, quit trying to educate me. I know what you need before you ask. What does he say? Do not be like that, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. But still pray. Now, pray. I don't know how far we're going to get, but let's go. Jesus said, I want to teach you to pray. And I have to say to my own uh, Rebuke, I never learned from this until five or six years ago. He breaks down about six categories. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's one category. Praise, adoration, worship. Two, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our priority in prayer ought to be God's will. God's will. That's what we're concerned about. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. We take to him our needs, our provisions we need to sustain life, whatever those are. And we call those our uh, petitions, whatever we need. Uh, fourthly, forgive us our debts. And he's not talking about Visa card. He's talking about relational debts, relational debts, not financial that's certainly taught in other places in the Bible. But he's here talking about relational debts that get paid through forgiveness. One of the great enemies of our prayer life is that we bump up against each other and we often do not do anything to repair the damage. And by the time we come to God to pray, God says, I'm not interested. Uh, and we'll see that later. And then... He pray, tells us to pray for protection 
from whatever temptations may be on the agenda for us because God is going to tempt all of his people. Uh, but the devil will be there to tempt you to sin. God will tempt you to develop your character. And so whether you know it or not, you're not going to get through life without being tempted by God and the devil. You ought to be doing some praying before you get into the trial because you may almost lose your prayer life when you're in it. Sometimes we're so confused, we become ambushed. Um, Rich Rollins used to always tell me, you need to make friends before you need them. And you need to learn to pray before you really need it, uh, which is all the time. Let's start with the first thing. Jesus teaches to pray, all right? When you pray, you do this. Say, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed is your name. Is that what it says? Is his name holy? This is a prayer that I'll treat it holy. It's really a request for help. First of all, our Father. What's my pet peeve about prayer? People don't call him Father. Uh, I was praying here the other day with the guy. Just, uh, I heard Lord God more times than I wanted to. And guess what? He is Lord and he is God. It's true. But you approach him on the basis of relationship. If you're going to pray, uh, hallow his name, let's do all the Elohim names. Let's do all the Jehovahistic names, about 10 or 12 of them. Let's do all the Adonai. Come on. It's not the, the, the New Testament name for God is Father. The Old Testament saints wouldn't dare as a whole approach God that way. But we have a new and living way, and we've been brought into a family context of prayer so that really the one you're praying to now has become our father. And notice he didn't say pray my father. My father is exclusive. Jesus said that, claiming his deity. Our father is a good reminder. We don't do enough corporate thinking in praying. Our father. I am in a community of believers. I don't have an exclusive right over you but I'm praying as a part of your flock, as a part of your family, as a part of a sacred community, you ought to start praying our instead of me, me, my, I, I. Our Father. I don't have an exclusive hold on you, but I'm one of your children. And I, first of all, want to ask you to do this for me today. Help me to treat your name and your person as though I fear you, revere you, and count you to be in another league. You're holy. And I'm in, your, I'm in the family of a holy God. And how did a holy God ever get me in this family? Well, it cost him the death of his son to get me there. But the idea, the first part of my morning worship ought to be I want to adore you, uh, your name will be taken in vain millions of times a day. Your laws will be broken in by the billions 
that are on the earth, you will be treated shabbily all day. I want to start my day. I'm working in an office where Playboy is handed around all the guys. I'm working in an office where guys are scheming on women. I'm working in a place that the bottom line is dollars, not your glory, not your honor, not your commandments, not your will. I start my day. I want you to be treated as hallowed by me. I've come to say, our Father, hallowed be your name. Wherever I am, may God be honored. That's the first part. Start right there. No grocery list. Why would God want to hear you if you don't want to hear him and honor him and fear him? Do you think you could stay there for a while? Some of you, when you show up, you, you're going to the first thing you have to say, I haven't been honoring you. You're going to have to break right there and start confession. I got I to gotta tell you, Lord, I haven't been honoring you with money, with my body, with my mouth, with my attitude. Wow, I, I, I need an adjustment. You're holy. You haven't bent during the night. Our Father, which art in heaven, would you be hallowed in me today? How can I treat you as holy when you will be drugged through the mud? Your name will be used in expletives, uh, and the goddamn uh, will be used all day. And you said not to take your name in vain. And you'll hear a lot of Christians say, my Lord, today that don't mean it. I hear Christians all the time say, my Lord, my God. And I, and I just cringe, and I think, Maybe there's too much Judaism in me. I thought you weren't supposed to take his name in vain. Why? He's holy. He's not cheap. But there's a generation. We're in a generation. Nothing's sacred. No, don't treat anyone that. I, I'm following my mentor. He says, first thing you ought to do is hallow. Ask God to be hallowed, to be held holy. Has anyone ever accused you of being holy? Has anyone ever accused you of treating God like he's there and he's not silent and he's real? He's saying, I want my people to first of all hallow me, treat me holy. We're the only ones that can do it. Did you know that's why he named you a saint? The word saint means a holy one, set apart. Set apart to do what? To treat God holy. Our Father, which art in heaven, be hallowed through your servant today. That's where we start. And when you reflect on that for a while, you just start asking, have I done this? Am I doing this? Does anybody in this household at my job, at my, at my company, wherever I have my influence, does anybody accuse me of treating God as holy? Let's forget about calling you holy. Let's see if they think you treat God as holy. Treat him like who he is. There is so much sin in the church today. People are doing whatever they want, sleeping with whoever they want, breaking the commandments. And coming to church and saying, he is Lord, you liar. He is not Lord to you. He is Lord, but he's not your Lord. 
You call me Lord and Master, but you do not do the things I tell you. Quit your blasphemy. Who is this God? And we don't, this doesn't build churches, but we need to quit worrying about building churches. We need to worry about honoring his name. Honor his name. Just tell it that this perverse generation say, our God hasn't adopted our way of thinking and morals. He's holy. That's who we want to be like. Well, this is a, a little convicting when I think about it, but listen to what he says. Second thing, and just ask yourself, am I praying this way? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you see the word kingdom, I want you to think of three R's, three R's. To have a kingdom, you got to have a ruler. Two, you got to have a realm, a realm. And three, you've got to have a reign, a reign. So when you say kingdom, the kingdom of God is coming. It's a already not yet concept in Scripture. He'll talk, the kingdom of God is within you. Well, when Jesus said that, he was on the earth. He said, the king is among you. He's offering you his kingdom. Now, we who believe that Christ will sit on the throne of David and rule on the earth for a thousand years in what is known as the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, promised to Abraham that kings would come out of his loins, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. We believe the Abrahamic covenant, and built on that covenant, he gave a Davidic covenant to David, a son shall come out of your loins, David, that will rule over all this land, and to his kingdom there will be no end. That is his greater son, the Lord Jesus of the household of David. Now, we believe that kingdom is coming and that it will be set up on the earth. Right now, he's king eternal, but he hasn't established his kingdom on the earth. You know what he's doing? Through the new birth, when you come to Christ, he's forming his cabinet for the kingdom when he sets it up. And the saints will get to reign with him when he rules over the house of David and over all Gentiles. And for a thousand years, he'll rule them like a rod of iron and he will have a thousand-year display that I am king, and I am fulfilling a promise to David and Abraham. I cannot lie. We say that's never been fulfilled. It's yet to come. But in the meantime, I've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. So I've already been in there. I'm in the realm of Christ. And he's my king. We don't pray that way too often. But he is our king as well as our savior. And when I pray, I want his reign, his influence, his sphere of control to be over everything in my life. Be king over all of my life, over my work life, over my home over my finances, over my children. Lord Jesus, I want your kingdom, your rule, your administration to be executed over me right now until we get into the kingdom that you will rule on the earth because you're king eternal. You've been a king from eternity. And I'm coming to you 
and I know that I'm in, under your reign, under sin shall not reign over you, but Christ shall reign over you, and then I want your will to be done. Uh, are you doing the will of God? Are you doing the will of God? Do you live to do the will of God? Or do you live for yourself? Where is God in your two ways I could tell you who runs your life? I dare you to give me your checkbook and to give me your uh, date book. And I'll look for God in both. I see here Costco. Is that your God? And I'll see, uh, I'll see this. I'll see Visa. I'll see that. Oh, got to pay. Got to pay your bills. Got to pay your bills. Uh, do, do you ever honor God with money? Uh, what about your lips? According to Hebrews 13, we honor God with our lips when we give him thanks and praise. Does, does anyone, do even your children ever hear you praising God? Thy kingdom come, and I want your will. Is God using your body? I'm just asking you. I don't know. But when you're praying, you, ought to, you and him ought to be saying, God, I have to be living to do your will, not my will. Uh, I don't have anything out there that I want to do more than doing your will. Is the will of God the number one thing you're concerned about with your life, where you're going to live, um, employment, uh, Christian service? I mean, we have some people in this church, they're wonderful people. They just haven't served for 35 years. That hasn't been the will of God. But, but we still preach to them every week. And, and uh, you know, sometimes I'll even come up and say, man, that was a great sermon. And underneath, I'm thinking, oh, get over it. When are you going to do it? We, I, I feel like uh, they said of Ezekiel, they used to go hear Ezekiel prophesy because he sounded like a musician. He was eloquent and just marvelous. And Ezekiel said, you listen to me as though I'm a minstrel player entertaining you, but you don't do a thing I tell you. You're hearers, but you're not doers. To know the will of God and not to do it is to sin. What's God doing with you? There's no place in the Bible God says, go warm a pew, because that encourages the pastor. <laughs> no. He said, come and be fed, come and be equipped, come and meet with the saints, interact. But I've got a will for you. I, I know what I want to do with your body. I know what I want to do, how I want to order your steps. And so, you, you know, uh, we just do so much stuff. And what we do a lot of times, we'll jump, make the mess, and say, Lord, I want to do your will. Get me out of this mess. He said, why didn't you ask me before you jumped? I said, well, you know, it was urgent. I, I, it was 52-inch screen, and the sale went off tomorrow. So, you know, it was urgent. Um, no. Uh, what, what in your life? Do you feel like you're under the authority of Christ in the way you're living? Uh, purchase, children, whatever. See, now, if you reflect on this, you say, come on, just read a little bit quicker. I like it the old way. You're going down. This is meddling. I didn't know, man, I, no wonder I didn't pray this. No wonder you don't know what it means. So I heard a man just say, I believe everything the Bible says, but I don't understand everything it says. Thank you. 
And we come to church just to create guilt for you so you can know what it means. Your kingdom come, your will. How about reading it this way? Your will be done in my life. I didn't get to determine whether Gavin Newsom became the lieutenant governor. I, I did not have a whole lot to do with that. I just, my hand just couldn't move that close on the ballot. God must have wanted him in. Because God's got a sovereign will. He's going to do some things whether you ever consult him or do it or not. But when it comes to your life, he wants your vote of approval, and he wants you to cooperate. He doesn't want to force you to do anything. He wants you to yield and say, I'll do anything to please you. The psalmist said in Psalms 32, let your eye guide me and do not use bit and bridle. I don't want to be a stubborn mule and because God can get you where he wants. Our, our pastors are going to be preaching on Jonah in February, when I go over to Singapore and India, I guess they're going to do a sermon on me. I'm Jonah. But, but they're going to be in Jonah for about four weeks. And he can get you, he can get you to Nineveh, but he'd like for you to go in the right mood. Because the great book of Jonah is, God can use, if God can use Jonah, surely he can do something with you. And if he can use Balaam's ass, surely he can use you. He's sovereign, but he wants you to cooperate. He wants you to say, here my life is, Lord. I have, I have no uh, joy in life. I have no fulfillment in life. I, and nothing makes me happier than doing the will of God. And that's what Jesus said in, in Hebrews 10. I delight to do thy will, O God. Sacrifice and offerings you haven't desired. You wanted a body offered up for sin. So here, you've created my body. You've got it. I'll go to the slaughterhouse. Just to do your will is all. I wish my epitaph would say, he did the will of God. Would that be enough? Who cares how much money you made? How big whatever it was? No, he did the will of God. And this comes up in your life, and you pray this honestly. Sin's going to come up, maybe stubbornness. Um, I mean, if you're in sin and, and you're kicking against the will of God, wouldn't that be hard? Your kingdom come, thy will be done in Sister Joan's life. No, no, we're talking about Brother Howard. Do you want it done with you? Say, so, well, Jesus, you're not running our office. Or does he run the space you're over? Just, I'm going to be a kingdom representative. I'm going to represent a new order, a new rulership. Christ reign. That's, I think, what he's saying. Pray about that. You know, John said, if we pray anything according to God's will, he hears us and he grants it. You know why a lot of people don't keep a prayer journal? They never get an answer because they're not asking very much that God wants to give. You've got to learn to pray what's God's will. And, of course, this book, this tells you uh, the will of God. This tells you about the will of God. Now, God sovereignly wants that baby to cry, so leave that baby alone. <laughs> Her mother didn't pinch him. Um, so let's go to verse 11. Give us this day our daily bottle. 
no daily bread. You know, I'm sorry, that does my mind just slipped a little bit there. Give us this day our daily bread and bless the nursery. Uh, you know, when's the last time you ever did this? I, you know, I, I don't thank God for daily bread hardly. I usually keep a week's supply on hand. Thank you, Lord, for the monthly supply. We just went to Costco. Half of it will be so frozen by the time we want it, I won't even eat it. I mean, all taste is gone after a month. Because you're not living in a culture that they were paid daily their wages. Uh, I think of my friends in India when Ramesh Richard and Bonnie went to uh, New Delhi at first, and he grew up in New Delhi. Uh, I was talking to Bonnie one time. I said, how do you like it there? She said, life is so difficult. And, and she said, I said, what's that? She said, it takes nearly three to four hours a day just to buy the food. Because you've got to go to the marketplace, and it's all these vegetables out. Then you've got to go to a separate place to get meat. And it's not going to a Safeway or a Costco or something under one building at that time, at least. It's 20 years ago. Uh, it's a life. Everything is slower, harder. And so when you don't have a refrigerator, when you don't have running water, uh, when you don't have a water treatment plant, and uh, where do you get food in Palestine? It's not a very agricultural place. And what did you eat in this time? Mainly bread, uh, more like uh, what you think of as like a, a, a tortilla, flat bread. Uh, grain, so you needed grain. That was the main sustenance. Meat was a very uh, uh, privileged thing. And so daily bread was hard to come by. It was something they think. So he's really saying you ought to ask God every day for what you need to sustain life. With us, we're praying, give, let me pay my homeowners, my car insurance, let me buy gas, let me make my uh, house payment, car payment. These people weren't making house payments. They inherited the house through their parents. But food was the issue. Food was the, the daily pressing needs. So really, I think the Lord wouldn't care for us moderns to say, Lord, you know what I need to sustain life. Raiment, shelter, food care for my children, bring the needs, immediate physical kind of needs. And he says, Jesus says, your father wants to hear you ask him about it. It won't be an insult. It won't be too um, secular for God's ears. Go tell him what you need. What a great privilege. He's concerned whether I have bread today. Did you have any breakfast? And you go to a church that if you can't afford bread, we'll fatten you up on donuts. <laughs> Free. So, I mean, where else could you go and know I'll get something and a free cup of coffee? I mean, you're blessed. But some of you need to run off those donuts, too. Uh, <laughs> let's see here. Uh, and then uh, I don't, I'm not going to have time. I'm really not. Uh, we'll develop. Forgive us our relational obligations. The word debt there 
is not money. It was used of money, but you'll find out my relational obligations. God does not want you to pray until you take care of the relationships you've ruined or you've been a part of. And it's one of two ways. Either the relationships where you've been sinned against or relationships where you've sinned against. Either way, he tells you, whoever knows about it first, initiate reconciliation. Because this is talking about relational obligations, and it's so important, he picks it up in verse 14 and 15 to say, in case you didn't hear what I said, just know your heavenly Father doesn't want to hear you pray and won't even forgive you relationally and in your walk with him until you take care of relational rents and tears. It has to be a priority. And think of how many prayer lives, and maybe it's why churches have stopped prayer meetings. They're better at fighting at business meetings than they are having prayer meetings because they're so mad at everybody you can't pray. And there's been many a church ruined themselves by how they fought in the monthly or yearly meeting over a lousy $100 purchase. No wonder prayer went out the window. Turn into cats and dogs when you discuss money and lose your prayer life. Lose your prayer life. We'll pick up next week, and I want to develop. He wants you to pray about your relationships every day, every day. And we'll look at them. And then I'm going to pick up, I'll add the final thing. He wants you to be praying about the temptations that he may or may not bring into your life. Will you be ready if he brings it? Because he told some men in the garden, pray, because you're about to be tempted. The greatest temptation in your life is only two hours away. And every man there failed because they slept and they didn't pray. So maybe he's going back to that that heartbreaking night in the life of all of his disciples to say, you ought to be praying. You never know what two hours can do to your life. But two hours testing without the help of God. 